Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Uh, this is a, uh, a rather alarming piece uh, that Thomas Lecoq wrote over at uh, rawstory.com. It's titled, A Former Trump Aide Has Tried to Build a Violent Right-Wing Christian Takeover of the U.S. The former Trump aide, of course, is Michael Flynn. Michael Flynn is apparently into, like, really exotic religions, like, you know, the old uh, theosophy stuff. He's talking about the seven rays and uh, saying prayers, you know, that, that uh, he can, you know, destroy his enemies and all this sort of thing. Uh, this is a, uh, the Summit Lighthouse and the Theosophy people. The, um, this was Manly Hall back at the uh, end of the 18th, at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. And, uh, and the IM movement and whatnot. And, and, they, and he, is, he is like really going nuts with, and, and also he's quoting Hal Turner, a neo-Nazi radio host who's been, according to, uh, to, to Thomas Lecoq, uh, who's been promoting various QAnon conspiracies and served time in jail for threatening elected officials, advocated murder repeatedly. And, uh, and Michael Flynn is quoting this guy. I mean, this is a guy who was trained as a warrior. He was trained to kill. He worked his way up through the military to the level of general. And then when he got into the White House in the, in the Obama administration, they figured out that he was up to no good. He apparently was back-channeling stuff to Russia and kicked him out. And then Trump brought him back in. And, and everybody, you know, they're like trying to, to bring this guy back. And now he's doing a roadshow around the country now that he's been you know, pardoned by Trump. He says, if we're going to have one nation under God, as we must, we must have one religion, one nation under God and one religion under God. And this was at a church, uh, another one at a church in Frisco. That was at a, on stage in another church. I mean, this, this is like this guy, people think there's this widespread belief in America that the anti-abortion movement grew out of the white evangelical movement. I mean, everybody knows that the Catholic Church is opposed to abortion and has been forever, but, or not forever, but, you know, since, since the mid-1800s. But the conventional wisdom is that the anti-abortion movement came out of the white evangelical movement, which is not the case. The white evangelical movement got political 
not around abortion, not in 1973 when Roe v. Wade was decided. The white evangelical movement came together, became a political force in the era between 1955 and 1975, more or less, in response to Brown versus Board of Education. The white evangelical movement got their political chops, built their power on segregation, on being opposed to the Supreme Court decision that mandated the integration of public schools, or at least uh, said it's no longer legal to intentionally segregate public schools. And in fact, the white evangelical movement was just fine with abortion right up until 1980. And it was in 1980 that a, a small group of right evangelical, right-wing evangelical leaders, white evangelical leaders, and the Reagan campaign, in a process that was organized by George W. Bush, who was a consultant to the Reagan campaign, as their liaison to the Christian community, to the, to the fundamentalist evangelical community, which George W. Bush credited with having helped him overcome his alcoholism. In 1980, that was the year that both the Republican Party became anti-abortion. Before that, they'd been very pro-abortion. Ronald Reagan, you know, right now California has one of the most liberal abortion laws in the country. And by the way, has one of the lowest levels of, infant, of maternal death. Down in, down in the South, you've got some of the most stringent you know, abortion rules making it difficult to get an abortion in the country, and they have some of the highest levels of maternal death. So anyhow, Reagan was the one who signed that most liberal abortion law in the country as governor of California. So he did a 180 in 1980. George Herbert Walker Bush, his vice president, did a 180 in 1980. He'd been a big supporter of Planned Parenthood prior to, prior to that. So 1980 was the year that both of both the white evangelical movement, which had had really grown and gained power by starting whites only schools, Christian academies to, to overcome Brown v. Board and the Republican Party, which was looking for an issue that they could galvanize people around after all the scandals of the Nixon era. You know, Nixon being bribed by the milk lobby, Nixon being bribed by Jimmy Hoffa, Nixon breaking into the into the Watergate Hotel, you know, Nixon, you know, uh, taking us off the gold. I mean, this wasn't a, a scandal, actually. I think it was a necessary thing, but there was a lot of blowback on the right to his to his taking us off the gold standard and devaluing our currency 21 percent over a period of four years, uh, three years, um, devalued it twice, the dollar, as a consequence of that. So they were looking for an issue, and abortion became that issue. But what came out of that was that the, the hard right, the Christian fundamentalist right, the, 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 the white evangelical movement that wants to, by and large, take us back to the 1950s, put women back barefoot, pregnant, and in the kitchen, segregate America racially, Churches have been referred to as the most segregated institutions in the United States. It's true. That white evangelical movement is now a power as a result of their adoption of this anti-abortion rhetoric. And now you've got people like Michael Flynn who are like just integrating themselves into that movement to the point where he, yeah, I mean, he's like the Energizer Bunny. He's hitting churches all over the country preaching this wild 
uh, I don't want to say explicitly violent rhetoric, but implicitly violent rhetoric, and mixing politics with the whole thing. And I just don't see how this turns out well for America, or frankly, for the white evangelical movement. Although they've had a pretty good ride now for the last 50 years. So anyhow, I wanted to share that with you. Just put it out there. Rashad in Corpus Christi, Texas. Hey, Rashad, what's on your mind today? Oh, hey, Tom. I just wanted to call. I know um, from past episodes or shows you've been encouraging people to call politicians or whoever really to express their views. And I called for the first time in years the Oakland County in Michigan, the prosecutor there, pleading, asking to please charge the parents of this school shooter. And I was glad to hear piece of good news today that the parents are getting charged with a voluntary manslaughter. No one else is going to take the steps to stop gun violence. Politicians won't do it. Companies won't do it. Only chance we have are prosecutors stepping up and at least taking one dent in this to say, if you're a parent, you're a gun owner, if you leave your gun loose, if you're negligent with it, you're going to pay. And just the charges are enough to send a message to hopefully stop the madness going on in this country right now with gun violence. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, I'm with you, Rashad. And uh, apparently one of these parents, at least from what I was seeing on CNN, one of these parents was basically advising this kid on how to buy ammunition online without their teacher finding out about it or, you know, something to that effect. I mean, this is this is seriously weird. It's enraging. Stuff. Yeah, it, it really is. Rashad, thanks a lot for the call. Um, and, and thanks for listening to us on SiriusXM. Picking up your phone calls here, Lynn in El Segundo. Hey, Lynn, what's on your mind today? Hi, I just wanted to remind you that uh, next week is the final session of the rulemaking committee uh, in the Department of Education. Anyone of the listeners interested in student debt and who has a story to tell should go to their website and register to attend the meeting, especially the last 30 minutes are reserved for public comment. And I did email you a link, but I don't know if you got it this morning. I, 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 don't know I if didn't, you got Lynn. It. So tell, tell me again, I, I, I must have missed the first five or six words. What is this again? It's for the, uh, anybody who's interested in attending the rulemaking committee of the uh, Department of Education. They're uh, working on revising the rules for student loan debt, uh, right. loan forgiveness, that kind of thing, public right. service. I think it's very informative, it's very interesting, and a chance for people's voice to be heard. They really need to hear people who have stories to tell. Lynn, if you can tweet that to me, I'll retweet it. That's a great way to yeah, get it Yeah, I don't, I don't do Twitter. They basically can go to ed.gov, look on the bottom right side where it says, how do I, dot, 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 question mark. You know, mm-hmm. just how do I, education making. Click on that, it'll take you down you can find that third okay. session the first week of yeah lynn your, your phone is starting to break up but i, I i'll i'll check it out okay. thank you very okay, much for the heads you. up i appreciate okay. it yep jerry in ontario california jerry you're on the air what's up yes tom i do this thing with this peace tree we called it there at uh, santa monica with veterans for peace and incense cedar they're really easy to grow they're the giant sequoia is the man's tree, so where's the woman's tree? But it will grow most anywhere, and it's a permanent carbon storage. So I, we called our thing carbon sinks nature's way. There's other trees, 
but the Iroquois, they made their peace underneath a pine tree they called their peace tree. Mm-hmm. And a chief of the Mohawk tribe, the Jake Swamp, gave me this woman's name, the first leader of the Iroquois. Now, I'll spell her name because I only heard it once from him in 1989. J-I-G-O-N-S-A-S-E-E. Her name means new face in Iroquois. Mm-hmm. But anyway, this this peace tree thing, I've given away thousands of these trees down there on the boardwalk. You know, as little uh, seedlings in a, in a foam cup. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this is something that, like in Afghanistan, I call them cedar bullets, the seeds. You could send these to Afghanistan with the story of this Iroquois woman. You, you played this thing about Benjamin Franklin and the Iroquois. In Franklin the appropriated that tree logo. I, I don't recall if it was for a, uh, he, he helped design one of our early currencies, uh, or maybe it was the Pennsylvania state currency, um, but uh, you can find it if you look around for it. Uh, well, forgive the interruption, Jerry. No, Hugh Downs did this thing in 1988. That's where I got the idea of going to the Iroquois, because I mm-hmm. always called it the Mr. Sequoia, mm-hmm. because it's the only tree that's compatible with it. But anyway, this is something that if we just send the seeds to the women in Afghanistan and that story, what is the Taliban going to do? Look for it at the well or where the water runs off? It's it's just a, a token, you know, a symbol as a powerful means to give many people something to believe in. And this is something that you've done. You know, I haven't heard you say this about the Iroquois with Benjamin Franklin for years, but you used to say it more than once about the thirty Iroquois coming to the writing of the Constitution. Yeah. So anyway, I just and the wanted to put that Union out too. There. And I just wanted to put that out there for people because. All along the West Coast right now, there's these seeds laying underneath these trees. Mm. And there's people that might, in this thing of yours, where these people really do. If you want to send seeds, tree seeds, though, to Afghanistan or anywhere else, wouldn't you want to get one, uh, the seeds of trees that will actually grow in that soil and that environment? They will. They will. California trees will grow grow in Afghanistan? They'll grow into Mexico. Afghanistan has... All these places were runoff. They they grow this fruit in these river bottoms. Uh-huh. They they grow amazing fruit, but they have no uh, they had no ride or no market. Right. So I, I always pitch this one. Huh. Anyway, this is something that people could do, and the name is there. The thing is there. Jake Swamp is real. It's a whole thing that, that anybody could do. Okay, sounds like a plan, Jerry. Thanks thanks a lot for the call and the heads up on it. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. 
You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And it's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today I'm reading from The Prophet's Way, A Guide to Living in the Now. It's actually a compilation of diaries and letters that I sent to friends on travels around the world. And it's kind of a autobiography, I suppose, of sorts. This is from Life in a Teepee. It's on page 25, and it starts with a quote from Lenny Bruce. Every day, people are straying away from the church and going back to God. My best friend through school was Clark Stinson. We met when we were 13, and instead of pursuing the normal pastimes of teenagers, we spent our time studying Sanskrit. We had an old study guide book I found in my father's library, reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead and arguing minutia from the Bible. Clark's mother was interested in metaphysics and shared a book called Autobiography of a Yogi with us. Years later, when I went to Detroit with her and Clark to attend an initiation in Kriya Yoga by Yogacharya Oliver Black, the oldest living disciple of Yogananda, I recognized Yogananda's Kriya technique as identical to an ancient Coptic exercise Master Stanley had taught us years earlier called the Cobra Breath. I introduced Clark to Master Stanley and Lee, and Clark and I began a serious study of spirituality. We were both in our late teens by then, and Clark had recently married. I was recovering from a painful breakup with a girlfriend, and we agreed that to do our spiritual work best, we should seek isolation. So Clark and his wife bought a teepee, and I bought one, and we three gave away everything else we owned in the world, except some clothes and our spiritual books. We bought 100 pounds of wheat, 100 pounds of dried fruits, some basic camping equipment, and got a ride into, up into Michigan's Upper Peninsula, where an old trapper led us on a three-day trek back into the Chippewa National Forest to a small lake that isn't on most maps. We spent the summer there, Clark and his wife on one side of the lake, me on the other. Three days a week we practiced silence and did meditation and prayer every day for hours. I had a pet tachnid fly, a small insect that looks like a honeybee but is actually a fly. When I'd meditate in the morning on my blanket outside my teepee, he'd come and hover just over my right hand as if he were drawing nourishment from me. Sometimes he'd hover there for as much as 20 minutes. Occasionally he'd land and walk around with careful steps like an astronaut exploring a distant but friendly planet. I also shared my teepee with a large and furry brown and black wolf spider who came out at night as the sun set and picked the sleeping mosquitoes off the canvas on the west side of my teepee. I watched the play of life and death, predator and prey. Here's an odd synchronicity that Carl Jung would have appreciated. I haven't seen a tachnid fly for years, but as I'm typing these words into a laptop computer on my back porch in Atlanta, one just hovered over my left hand for a few moments and then landed. He's here with me as I'm sitting as I'm typing, sitting on my hand. One cold and rainy afternoon, Clark and I were walking through the woods looking for berries and edible plants. We'd gotten pretty skilled at identifying what was safe and what wasn't, and were filling a bag with leaves and fruits. 
This must be what our ancestors lived like, Clark observed, hunting and gathering. Except we're vegetarians, so we're just gathering, I said, joking. But to Clark, it wasn't a joke. Seriously, what we call civilization started when humans started farming. But humans like us were around for tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of years before that, fully conscious, awake, aware, thinking and feeling just like us. But they were hunters and gatherers instead of farmers. I said, without agriculture, there'd be no civilization. It was an interesting thought. Remember Miss Hemmer, Clark said. Miss Hemmer had been our eighth grade biology teacher and one of the best teachers I'd ever known in my life. Clark and I had conspired to make her life difficult, but we also loved her and learned more from her each month than from any of our other teachers in a year. And she was a huge fan of Margaret Mead. Clark said, she said that in primitive societies, there isn't suicide, depression, drug addiction, all that stuff. The noble savage, I said, shivering. I'm skeptical and cold. And the Indians who lived here once were probably cold, too. He shrugged and said, this life seems much more natural to me. At least I had to agree with that. A few days later, Clark came running over to my teepee with his Bible all excited. Look at this, he said, pointing to Genesis 4-2. It says, Cain was a tiller of the ground. The Bible is talking about how the first murderer was also the first farmer. And in the 25th verse, it makes it clear that Abel, the brother who was not the farmer, was the one who loved God the most. So what, I said. It's a classic archetype of the oldest child being the most beloved, but also the one who screws up. It's all over, from Greek mythology to Shakespeare. Don't you see, Clark said, Adam and Eve were gatherers like we are now. They walked around the Garden of Eden and picked up food. But then they tasted of the knowledge of good and evil, of life and death. That's your food supply. You live or die by it. When you live as a gatherer, you live by a whim of nature. If there's no food, you die. When you begin to store up food, you can defy nature and survive a drought. You then have the power to control life, the knowledge of life or death, or good and evil. So the tasting of the apple must have meant that Adam and Eve experimented with agriculture, and in doing so, they defied the God of nature. It's a warning. It's saying that the primitive life of hunting, gathering, and herding was more in accord with nature's way than is agriculture. Clark dove deep into the issue, but I didn't consider it all that important at the time. I couldn't see how when people started farming after the end of the Ice Age, it had been such a bad thing. After all, it brought us modern society and science. Clark, however, was totally certain that agriculture and what he called the organized ones were responsible for the coming death of the earth. The book, The Prophet's Way. Tom in Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Tom, what's on your mind? Hey, I was just uh, looking at the social media from Senator Ron Johnson, and I think today he really went off the deep end when it comes to COVID. He was saying uh, to maintain their power and control, President Biden and the COVID gods want to keep us all in a state of fear. And then he goes on to describe the new Omicron uh, variant as something we don't have to worry about and we should have Americans take control of their health care instead of Washington bureaucrats. The problem is that there are Republicans who actually believe this stuff, and mm-hmm. they're, going, they're going to infect people. They're going to die. It's, just, it's insane that we have this sort of two realities in this country today. Yeah. Well, we have those two realities because the Republicans have decided that the, you know, keeping the coronavirus circulating in America 
and keeping people sick and keep, keeping people afraid to go into restaurants and bars and theaters and things is going to hurt the economy as it did when Trump was president. But if they can maintain this even in the face of vaccines by you know, discouraging people from getting vaccinated, then that's going to hurt Joe Biden. And you know what? What was good enough for Trump is good enough for Biden. Let's let's have the vaccine take down another president. It's 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 uh, it's disgusting. Is not even a strong enough word, but uh, spot on, Tom. Thank you very much, Dave in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. I had a question or two questions really on uh, abortion. And first of all, I'm certainly not pro-choice or anything. Just to be honest, but when I hear discussions where it seems like there is somewhat of a consensus amongst the public when I read about polls and, and whatnot. Why are, are issues like abortion not taken up through legislation as opposed to letting a group of, you know, less than a dozen people, a courtroom, decide whether or not it's legal? Yeah, I'm, I'm completely with you, Dave, regardless of whether, you know, you're in favor of a woman's right to choose or, or not. I agree. And this is the big failure that Congress has done since 1973 is they have had multiple opportunities, well, they've had 50 years of opportunities to pass legislation putting Roe into law. And because they failed to do that, we're here where we are right now. And I guess that's my point is either way, uh, on either, either side of the discussion, it just seems like Roe is not good law in that it comes up over and over through the judicial system as opposed to just taking care of it through legislation. I agree. I, I think that uh, Roe v. Wade was an example of the Supreme Court making law. Uh, they, they were doing it, they thought, to deal with a crisis. They were, they, they were doing it, they thought, to, to identify actual constitutional rights. I think it was a, generally a good thing. It saved probably a lot of women's lives. Um, at the time, but it should have been picked up by the legislature immediately. Um, these are not the kind of things that should be left to to courts. Uh, so, you know, yeah, uh, I'm with you. Dave, thank you for the call. Bill in St. Helens, Oregon. Hey, Bill, what's up? Hi, Tom. Now this I'm a first-time caller, well, but I've you. been listening to you ever since you've been on Air America. I wanted to also want to mention about abortion. You know, mm -hmm. there's nothing in the Bible that bans abortion. In fact, the book of Numbers, there's a command actually for a, if a man suspects his wife of, uh, of infidelity that to create a miscarriage to go to a priest. And that's in Numbers, uh, uh, fifth chapter, Numbers, verses right. 11 through 15. Yeah, there's also a place, and I believe it's Isaiah, I could be wrong, where uh, the, whoever is the author is praying to God to cause... Uh, spontaneous abortions in their enemies. Uh, there you go. And then, then the Bible itself. Calling on God the abortionist. A, a baby is truly alive until it can breathe air on its own. Right. And 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 yet, you know, you you're we're looking at fetal heartbeat, and, and you're you're looking at a, at banning abortion before a baby even has developed a, a has a fully developed nervous system. Right. Which is totally wrong. But the main thing is that that uh, I wanted to say is that that many people seem to think that all Christians should be against abortion. But the Bible seems to say otherwise. Yeah, well, in, in, yeah, and this is the problem is that this is ultimately a, a religious argument, uh, you know, and, and, and 
you know, it's, we're, we're never going to resolve it because different people well, believe Well, the thing about things. is that I think a woman should have a right to choose and that, that the decision about abortion is, is, should be up, 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 up to, to the woman and her doctor, not to politicians. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Bill, thank so, you very anyway, much. That's... Yep, uh, well said. Carol in Manesson, Pennsylvania. Hey, Carol, it says you wanted to disagree on that point? Uh, yes, I really would like to. Um, uh, I'm a Catholic. I converted 30 years ago to Catholicism. And I'd like to say why we believe that abortion is wrong, if that's okay. Sure. We have two okay. minutes. Uh, oh, the strongest thing that we believe in is the strength of the nuclear family and how it makes a country strong if you have a strong nuclear family. And the things which contribute to the decline, which we are seeing a great deal today in the nuclear family are things like divorce, contraception, and abortion, all of which contribute to people figuring, well, sex is just like a video game. If we feel like doing it, we're going to do it. Then how do you account for the fact, Carol, that in the states that allow abortion and make it fairly easy to get, like California, you have a much lower divorce rate than you do in Mississippi? Well, I, I don't care about that so much. I don't care about what the divorce rate is today anywhere. I thought it's we were high. talking about the family. I'm not trying to debate. Yeah, you. we are talking wondering. about why Catholics believe what okay. they believe. All they right. believe, first of Continue. all, they believe that man has a soul and that human life begins at conception, which is what scientists agree on, by the way. But we believe that the strength of a nuclear family is, uh, is being undermined by divorce, contraception and abortion, and they are all equally evil uh, in our sight. That's all. This, we just believe that people should be, you know, that, that God intended marriage to be between a man and a woman. He made sex pleasurable for that reason, and that it's enjoyable within, the, you know, within a marriage. And that that's the most important thing is that you stay married, you have a nuclear family. It's the greatest strength you can have in any country. That's what we believe. Carol, I honor your beliefs. Thank you. <laughs> I really do. I, honor, I, 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 mean, I really to. am not out there saying, oh, get rid of Roe v. Wade. That's irrelevant to me. We need to educate people. That's all. We need to educate people. And the church does a pretty good job of that. I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot of that out there. But, but, you know, when it becomes law, when, when your religion gets inflicted on my religion, <laughs> then I think we have a problem as a country. But I, I, I totally honor your religion. Carol, thank you very much. And you said it very well. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu 
slash podcast. Vincent, Churchill, Tennessee. Hey, Vincent, what's on your mind today? Yes, how you doing? Yeah, I'd just like to say hello. And um, something that just came to mind, you know, people don't realize, they think that uh, the Trump administration was the only one that caused all of these problems, that made all of these crazy laws. I was just remembering something about uh, Bush Jr.'s time in office, where they absolutely went crazy and they went rampant. And they went ahead and they put laws in office that would actually make your head really bug out. For example, um, I was read, I was reading up on something about uh, Halliburton that they're allowed to inject chemicals that are even worse than um, you know other toxic chemicals such as diesel and, and other things. Right. Oh, you're is, talking about totally the uh, the fracking laws. The, the yeah, the, yeah where they where they allowed them to. Basically, what's happened is in some in some states in some areas. Uh, fracking operations have become basically uh, uh, waste disposal operations. Yes, but they, they're actually allowing people to get sick. You can't do nothing. If you get sick from cancer, guess what? You, Halliburton is covered. You yeah. can't do nothing. You yeah. can't take them to court. Yeah, and, people and, don't and they can, and yeah, the, the, the Bush administration was protecting the uh, formula of the fracking fluids as a proprietary trade secret. And that formula could, you know, I mean, there, there are toxic liquids, toxic waste products that can cost thousands of dollars a pound to dispose of properly if you put them in an incinerator and you know, burn them at 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit or something like that. But, gee, if you mix them in and dilute them in with some fracking fluid, they just end up underground. Isn't that sweet? Vincent, excellent mm -hmm. point. You know, thank you very much. Lori in Cashiers, North Carolina. Hey, Lori, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I used yeah. to work in a uh, freestanding surgical clinic in the 80s, and the DNC was code for abortion. Now, the suicide thing fell off, and quickly it turned into, you know, irregular periods or cramps. But what I'm trying to impart mostly is that the older conservative white doctors were very against abortion, mainly because this gets to what we talked about earlier this week about greed. They didn't get paid enough. If you were white and Christian or Jewish, you were a poor, unfortunate girl. But if you were black, oh, they didn't get paid as much if you were black from the government. And then it was a whole different attitude, and it was just horrible, horrible to watch. Hmm. Wow. And the other thing I wanted to touch on was this Amy Coney Barrett thing of you can put your life on a shelf for a year and then just deposit your baby at the fire station idea. Right. This right. sets our society up for another Dickinsonian nightmare. And it makes me wonder, is this the next step of the Republican plan to put more skinheads in the military and the police departments? Establishing foundling homes in the United States again? Is that what you mean? Yeah, and, and breeding enforcement. Yeah, yeah. And I, maybe I, forcing it, them to work their way out of it. it I think what's going to happen, Lori, is uh, apartheid America. And uh, the, the, the sad part about this 
Because you're going to have, I mean, you've got over 20 states now that have passed laws making abortion illegal, essentially, or, or radically restricting it. And, and probably it's going to end up 25 or 30 states that do this. And then you've got another 20 states that are democratically controlled where abortion will continue to be legal. And in fact, abortion protections will probably be strengthened. And um, if this actually, if these bans on abortion could be enforced at the state level, in other words, if a, a middle class white woman in Mississippi, and I'm, I'm saying white just because that's like, you know, what you were pointing out, this, this, the, the burden of, of abortion tends to fall more heavily on, on people of color uh, because poverty tends to fall more heavily on people of color. Let's just take the race out of it for a moment. If a, if a middle-class woman in Mississippi gets pregnant and doesn't want to have a, a child, she can hop on a plane and fly to California or New York and get an abortion. But if a poor woman in Mississippi gets pregnant, she's in trouble. And, and so you're going to see poor women trying the techniques that were used prior to 1973 to get an abortion. Um, and, and it's going to be, you know, a, a mess. But the thing that I fear, and this is, the, and this is basically what this, the, the, this top op-ed in, in the Washington Post is, is arguing, is, is, is uh, proclaiming, is that because middle-class women will still be able to get an abortion anywhere in the United States just by hopping on a plane, there's not going to be that level of outrage among the middle-class women who represent you know, the majority of voting women in the United States to, uh, you know, there's just not going to be this huge backlash against the Republicans. I don't know if that's true or not, but it makes sense to me and it concerns me. I think women will react and I think women will react strongly. And the other thing you have to consider, this is, I have as much concern about Reagan as you do, believe me, because this all started under Reagan. And it was just terrible that a white girl could come in with the same amount of pregnancies, and she was just a poor unfortunate. But if it was a black woman, oh, my gosh, then it was the welfare queen yeah. rhetoric started up. And it was... That you were hearing in the hospital where you worked. It was, yes. And it was just, it was just horrible. It yeah. was just horrible. Well, this but is I also how our criminal justice system does it. The doctors, the doctors in this country can be part of the driving force behind these programs. Yeah. Well, I mean, they, in, in the 2000s under Bush, they were able to cap tort lawsuits against them, mm -hmm. correct? Against doctors, yeah. And, and that was done state by state, I believe. Yeah. You, know, you had the so-called tort so reform in Texas. it's the same technique. It's the exact same technique. Yeah. Yeah. Is that I, we need to protect our jobs. We need to get paid more, 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 more. Yeah. And I, that's why we need universal health care in this country. I'm with you. I'm with you, Lori. And <laughs> to the disparity, to the racial disparities, this is the same thing we see in criminal law. If a white kid shoots a bunch of people up, as just happened this week, it's like, oh, poor, poor unfortunate child. It must be bad parenting or maybe, uh, you know, he's uh, taking drugs or whatever. If it's a black kid, it's like, oh, he's evil. He's bad. He's, you know, I mean, it's Correct. just, you know, we just, we just, it's a knee jerk thing in America and has been forever. And I, I think it's deeply and profoundly uh, wrong and unfortunate. Lori, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. Fred in LaPorte, Indiana. Hey, Fred, what's on your mind today? I know you're a big proponent of EV, electric vehicles. I'm not against them, but I'm, I'm concerned as to 
what's going to happen with all these batteries that's uh, going to be running all this equipment? It's not just uh, cars, automobiles. It's almost every hand tool or anything that's run by an internal combustion engine now is run by a battery. I saw where they just had a snowblower run by batteries. They, I have hand tools that are run by batteries. I'm afraid in the future we're going to have a glut of batteries and nobody's going to want to dispose of them because what I've read about is recovering the precious metals in a battery is very expensive. And they one way is to smelt them down, which means yeah. they're going to heat them up. They're encased in plastic. Plastic, when heated, gives off toxic fumes. Are we going to trade carbon footprint for toxic fume uh, yeah. footprint? The, the, Fred, the way I'm looking at this is, you know, when, when we first started driving cars, they got like three to four miles to the gallon. And over time, we've figured out how to go a whole lot farther with a whole lot less gasoline. And we've fine-tuned the technology. And here in, I believe it's in Oregon, there's a factory that's making batteries. Now, these are major industrial batteries. They're for, like, powering entire buildings. But they're made out of iron. They're using iron instead of lead and instead of lithium. They're very, very cheap to manufacture. They're, they're literally the size of a tractor trailer. Um, but like I said, to power an entire building. And uh, I think that as this technology becomes more widespread, it, it's going to become more sophisticated. It's the same thing with solar technology. You know, 30 years ago, solar panels cost a fortune and didn't work very well. And now they're quite cheap and they're very efficient. And, and, uh, and there's a whole other generation of flexible solar panels coming along. They're turning them into roofing uh, shingles and things. So um, I, I get your concern, Fred. I, I totally get your concern. But I, I think that uh, not wanting to sound like a complete fanboy for technology, but if you look at how these kind of things shake out over time, they tend to, they tend to resolve themselves. And uh, I, I think this is a good trend. It's moving us away from fossil fuels. And even if there's a, a short period during the transition where we have to use more fossil fuels to ultimately use less fossil fuels, that's the price you pay for. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is by Pat Mitchell. It's titled Becoming a Dangerous Woman, Embracing Risk to Change the World. This is from the preface titled The Most Dangerous Woman in the Room. Yes, I'll be there. Eve Ensler was calling with an invitation to what she described as the meeting of movements planned for the first week of January 2017. In the wake of a polarizing presidential election in the United States, Eve had decided it was time for activists to come together to shape strategies that would unify and leverage the collective power of a wide range of social justice organizations. Who else is coming, I asked. I'm not releasing the invitation list, Eve replied, but you'll want to be in the room. Indeed, I did want to be in that room, knowing from past experiences that any meeting or event that Eve organized would be meaningful. So I showed up, as the invitation indicated, at a nondescript building in Stone Ridge, New York, and surrendered my cell phone to the smiling young volunteers at the front door. Best to have all communication devices outside the room, was the explanation, which of course heightened my anticipation about what would transpire within the room. I entered a large room and saw Eve standing at the front with folding chairs in a circle. Mingling about the room were some familiar faces. The meeting's other conveners, Kimberly Crenshaw of the African American Policy Forum, 
Naomi Klein, award-winning author and activist, independent media entrepreneur and journalist Laura Flanders, and Jane Fonda, actor and activist. We were asked to find our seats, and Eve began. We are living in dangerous times, was her opening line, and such times call for new levels of activism from all the communities represented in this room. Let's begin by identifying who's in the room. One by one, the introductions began. I'm one of the founders of the Women's March. I'm the executive director of 350.org. I run Project South. With each introduction, the level of leadership and activists' credentials became more impressive and, for me, more intimidating. I could feel my anxiety building. How was I going to identify myself? I have no title and was no longer running an organization, having left my CEO position at the Paley Center for Media the previous spring. I could say that I was the CEO of Pat Mitchell Media with its grand total of two employees, including myself, but that felt wholly inadequate to explain why I belonged in that room. I mentally rehearsed some other options. I could say I was a lifetime advocate for women, true enough, if a little vague. I could list some of my previous titles, but why make a point of being the former anything? I was struggling with, to come up with how to identify myself in the present, an identity that would hopefully give some indication of why Eve had included me in this circle of activists and leaders. Finally, it was my turn. Before I knew it, I heard myself saying, I'm Pat Mitchell and I'm a dangerous woman. I'm not sure exactly what prompted this personal declaration of dangerousness, but I could tell from the looks of surprise that I needed to add a bit more context. At this time in my life, about to turn 75, I continued, I have nothing left to prove, less to lose, and I'm ready to take more risks and to be less politic and polite. As Eve said, these are dangerous times, and dangerous times call for dangerous women. That got a big sisterly yes from Eve and others in the circle, including Jane Fonda, who was sitting across from me, and stood up declaring, well, I'm older than my friend Pat, so that makes me even more dangerous. Laughter erupted, of course, and I could sense that others were contemplating exactly what becoming more dangerous to meet the challenges of dangerous times would mean for each of us and for the work we had convened to consider. Certainly, Jane Fonda's life of activism is a textbook case for being bold and brave, during our many years of friendship, I've, I'd witnesses, I've witnessed her willingness to take risks for a good cause, to speak out and show up, even when it meant personal peril or sacrifice. At 81, she is still on the front lines, campaigning for domestic and restu restaurant workers' rights, standing with the American Indian communities, protesting natural resource exploitation at Standing Rock, and busier as an actor than ever. In her book, Prime Time, Jane advanced the idea that Older women have the potential to become the most powerful population on the planet. She's a great example of how we embrace that potential at every age. My personal potential for becoming dangerous is perhaps more directly linked to my friendship with Eve Ensler. From our first conversation in war-torn Sarajevo in 1998, I've been deeply inspired by her courage and her commitment to do whatever is necessary to end violence against women everywhere. Taking risks comes easier to Eve than to many, writing and performing the vagina monologues, making it the centerpiece of a global movement, V-Day, to end gender-based violence, is a transformative approach to activism that I feel privileged to have experienced. Yes, I was an activist and woman's advocate before I met Eve, but through my relationship with her and as a board member of the V-Day movement, I've met activists facing dangers every day to create change in some of the most difficult places on earth to be a woman. 
But until that day, I had not felt dangerous myself. Declaring myself a dangerous woman still feels a bit, well, dangerous. And I readily admit to some second thoughts about declaring it even more widely and boldly as the title of this book. But every day since that convening, I'm discovering more about what being dangerous means in my life and why I believe that it's time for us, women and the men who stand with us, at whatever age or place in life's journey, to embrace risks and engage with renewed passion and collective purpose in making the world a safer place for women and girls. Pat Mitchell, Becoming a Dangerous Woman. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Let's try Jennifer in New York City. Hey, Jennifer, what's on your mind today? Hi. Um, I just wanted to respond to, I think her name was Carol, who was talking about um, Catholicism yeah, and um, abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, she said, and she just sort of just blew it off and ran over it. She said, um, scientists believe that life begins at conception, which uh-huh. I really don't think it, uh, you can lump all scientists together. And I think, frankly, a lot of them don't believe that. I agree. I just I agree. I, I, I was, <laughs> I, you know, other than pointing out that if your concern is the family, that in the states that make abortion really, really hard, which are also typically fairly poor states, but you know, the states that make abortion really hard are also the states that have the highest rates of teenage pregnancy, the highest rates of sexually transmitted disease, and the highest rates of divorce, and, and the and, highest rates and of spousal abuse. And poverty, too. And, yes, and children in poverty. And none of those things are positive for families. Now, to draw a relationship between that and abortion laws is um, you know, a pretty fallacious science. You know, it's, it's not that's not good science. That's that's correlation, not causation. But exactly. But cor- I just I really thought that was an interesting point that she just whipped right by. Yeah. Well, <laughs> to, you know, to make her point stronger. She was speaking of her beliefs. You know, somebody tweeted to me. You know, uh, about something about. Uh, you know, she was talking about the nuclear family, and this is a European creation. And why didn't you talk about the extended family, which is, you know, uh, something that has a much actually longer and deeper history and humanity and 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 culture than the nuclear family? And you know, I didn't I didn't respond on Twitter. I'm, I'm on the air. It's kind of hard to uh, immediately respond. But my response would be, she was expressing her beliefs. And when somebody says, "This is what I believe. This is what my religion is." I, I personally feel very uncomfortable trying to debate their religion with them. Yeah, of course. And, you know, but when you're right, when she did say she quoted scientists or, or tried to, and, and uh, you're, you're absolutely right. That, in fact, the debate about when life begins, uh, there's both a scientific debate and, and, and how you define life and also a religious debate on that. So, Jennifer, thank you very much. Uh, good to hear from you. James in Seattle. Hey, James, what's on your mind? Hi. Um- I just wanted to talk about uh, Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. He 
great scientist. I met him 20 years ago. Um, I've read his books. Behavioral. Yeah. My favorite one is, how solution. do your dogs know when you're coming home? Yes. And uh, I was at, when, at that conference, he was talking about that the worldview of the world is materialism, which mm -hmm. is also known as atomism. And it's based on four known false principles, that everything is dead, nothing is conscious, nothing is charged, and everything is disconnected. Now, it's that last one that Margaret Thatcher latches onto the conservatives, that everything is just a single individual. Right, there's no such thing as society, there's just individuals and families, yeah. What's no, there's no families. If you don't, if you don't have a connection to anything, you don't have a, even a family. Well, she, in her so, quote, she said individuals and families. The and families part is typically dropped from her quote when people are trying to diss her, but she did acknowledge families. But I, I agree with you. Sheldrake uh, nailed that. And you're absolutely right. And none of those four principles are true. Um, I, I believe everything is conscious and everything is interconnected. And, I'm, and forgive me for not remembering the other two points that you made, but I think it's all one thing. And we're just like, you know, radio receivers here, just tuning in little bits of it and selectively at that. We'll be right back. Larry in uh, Los Angeles. Hey, Larry, what's up? Hi. I want to talk about uh, quantitative easing. You know, mm -hmm. the Japanese a long time ago because their consumers don't act like Americans. They don't go out and spend all their money as soon as they get it like Americans do. So the Japanese um, the Japanese government decided they wanted to have their corporations um, be funded basically on the same level that American um, corporations are funded. So they did quantitative easing, and what that does is they expand the money supply, basically turning their currency into junk over time. And so what that did is all of those Japanese citizens who were saving their money in their mattress because they had seen so many disasters, all the earthquakes and we dropping bombs on atomic bombs on them, the, um, the nuclear disaster that they had in the power company when you said, and tsunamis. When you sit back and look at it, they were always making sure that if a disaster, another one comes, they would have money at home mm -hmm. so they wouldn't stop. And so, but Americans don't act like that because we haven't seen the disasters that they have, including the uh, the Japanese also. At least this generation. I mean, you know, I knew parents, uh, I knew people in my parents' generation who literally had right. cash stashes at home. And I'm not talking rich people, thing. I'm talking middle class people who, you know, had 5,000 bucks in, in, in $10 bills hidden under their beds my, and stuff. My father did the same thing. I, I walked into his house one day, I put my hand on top of the grandfather's clock. And the whole stack of paper, I just grabbed it all, and it was about twenty thousand dollars. I said, what, yeah. "What is this doing here?" And he and he goes, "That's um, that's my money, and I got more of it else, elsewhere." I said, "Dad, you need to take that to the bank." Yeah. So I talked him into taking it to the bank. He had no bars on his. Um, this is Los Angeles. He had no bars on his windows, no um, nothing to stop somebody from walking in and doing exactly what I did, yeah. then walking out with the money. Right. So, um, and that's because he lived through the Great Depression. Yeah, same with but my understand parents. That the yep. Yeah, understand that the Japanese went through tsunamis, earthquakes, and then Chernobyl, not Chernobyl, but the, um, the nuclear power plant that blew up, right. and then we dropped two atomic yeah, bombs. Fukushima, on. Each yeah. time we do that, the banks are closed. Mm -hmm. and, and so if you want to live, you have to keep the money at home. And that's what the Japanese people were doing. So the, so the Japanese government decided, okay, we'll just 
ruin their money that they have saved in their Through mattress. inflation. And we'll print, pardon? Through inflation. Yeah. And so then we'll, we'll just uh, take all that money and using quantitative easing to buy up corporate assets. And uh, America has been watching this for a long time. And so they decided that, hey, we could do the same thing. And that's what they did when George Bush uh, admittedly destroyed capitalism to save it. And, uh, and that was him bringing all that money in to the corporations. Right. And then they did it again for Donald Trump. And when you sit down and think about what they did in Donald Trump, that was about $12 trillion they gave to the top 2%, 2 to 3%. And then some of the congressmen and, and senators started complaining. What are you going to do for Main Street? So he set aside 100, um, actually $1.2 trillion, I believe. Mm -hmm. And he made, gave the, so many... He being Jerome Powell? Yeah. There mm -hmm. were so many restrictions on that, they only spent $16 billion. That's what the... Wow. They threw crumbs to the little people. Right. And they gave the, the billionaires, they, they gained money. They oh, actually, yeah. Uh, yeah. And this well, is the first it's... time in history... Go ahead. It's the first time in history where you had a recession and the rich got richer. That's interesting. They, they actually got richer. I thought the rich and got that's, richer that's during right. the Great Depression, too. No, they were jumping out of buildings and, um, and committing suicide. They yeah. did the same thing uh, in Europe. Oh. A couple of guys jumped out of buildings and committed suicide in, uh, when George W. Bush gave us the, uh, the Great Recession. Yeah. The only guy that I'm aware of that killed himself was a, a poor guy who didn't know how the stock market worked, and he overextended himself, thought it was it would ruin his life, and he killed himself. He was yeah. a poor guy. No yeah. rich people killed themselves uh, when Donald Trump uh, blew up the recession. Uh, that's because they quickly, it's a really sharp turnaround where they just started pouring the billions. Oh, and they got, and they got an absolutely massive bailout. Fascinating history, Larry. Larry, thank you very much. It's, it's always great to hear from you. Thank you. Dennis in Aptos, California. Hey, Dennis, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's on your mind today? Yeah, hi. I want to bring up electric cars. Um, and the reason I want to is because of the high price of gasoline. If anything, people should be going out and buying gasoline cars. And there are gasoline, uh, I mean, uh, electric cars. There are plenty that are not that expensive. I got my Tesla Model 3 in June of 2019. Tesla took my three-year-old Prius at the time. Um, and took $16,000 off the cost of the car. I got it for $28,000. Really? So, wow. yeah. And, so um, Tesla you know, gave you a trade-in. Was for this over through, two and a, half years. Was this a, through a local Tesla dealer? It was from Tesla. I went up to right. Fremont at uh -huh. the plant. And, well, near the plant, they have a place where they have all the cars where people go and pick them up. Hmm. Uh, that was my test drive when I picked it up. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I, I know there's when I watch the news and they're bringing up the gasoline prices, I don't hear anyone. No one mentions a solution to buy electric cars. Yeah. And uh, the other the other day I had NPR on and this, you know, guy from Stanford of some professor, he's talking about energy and how we need how we still are going to need oil for a long, long time. And he mentioned renewables at the very end of the interview. Right. It was practically his last sentence before uh, they went on to something else. Yeah. And, you know, uh, that's why people call NPR Nat National Petroleum Radio. Yeah. I mean, you know, we have the existential threat 
you know, it's, it's that the planet in 50 years, if we don't do anything, 60 years, it's, it's a lot of the planet's going to be uninhabitable. It's going to be too hot to live. It was 130 degrees one day last uh, this last summer in Palm Springs. Yeah, yeah. Which I is mean, Death Valley temperatures. Stuff is needed. Yeah. No, I'm 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 with you, Dennis, and and uh, that's great. I'm I'm uh, I'm all in favor of it. Thank you very much for the call. Well said, as always, Jessica in Hinsdale, Illinois. Hey, Jessica, thanks for watching Free Speech. What's up? Hi, Tom. Good to talk to you again. When a person knows they have a deadly disease that can infect infect others and lead to death. It's a crime to endanger their life. And I just want to say the Trump family are the most evil, disgusting mask holes that ever were allowed in the White House. And I remember watching Trump-Biden debate, telling my friends Trump has COVID. The way I knew was when the commentator said, Trump's on the honor system. Trump they lit up and he had such an evil grin. Yeah, Trump refused to get uh, tested when he came in for the debate with Biden and claimed that, you know, I mean, he showed up late. So he says, oh, there's no time to test me. Sorry, we got to do this debate. And, yeah, and it's because he knew he would have tested positive and that would have been the end of that. I was wishing Biden's team would have said, go take the test and then return to stage. Right, and we'll, we'll wait 10 minutes or 15 minutes or whatever it is. Yeah. 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 And after that, I called Kamala's office all the time to say only debate in a plexiglass spot. Be protected. And when Trump debated, his eyes were so pussy. I believe he had coronavirus, too. Oh, yeah. And no, I think his whole family had it. <laughs> I think that they were spreading it around. And that's why they all refused to wear masks. Jessica, I got to run, but thank you for the call. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.